The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, it's Dr. Will Cole. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up and welcome to the art of being well. I am a leading functional medicine doctor. I get to consult people around the world via telehealth, and I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, The Inflammation Spectrum, Ketotarian, and Gut Feelings. If you want to learn more about my clinical work, our telehealth center, we have brand new telehealth patient options now open, and lots of free resources there for you as well. You can check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L. C-O-L-E dot com. And listeners, we're giving away free signed books. Every episode, pretty much every episode, we're giving away free healthy stuff. Today's episode, we're giving away free signed books, which we do a lot every single month, no matter when you listen to this episode. All you have to do for a chance to win is head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Art of Being Well there. Tell us what you love about the show. You can leave your Instagram handle in the Apple Podcast review itself, or you could take a screenshot of that review. Message me on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole. We'll randomly be picking winners every single month. I'll reach out to you. We'll ask which book you want me to sign, and we'll send it out to you. Good luck. Let's get to today's guest. Her name is Dr. Nicole Sparks. She is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology, and she currently practices in Georgia as an OB hospitalist. Dr. Sparks is passionate about empowering women to take charge of their health and decreasing maternal mortality rates in the United States through awareness and patient education. She has an active social media presence, both on Instagram and TikTok, and serves as an advisory board for FemHealth. Dr. Sparks is a published children's book author and has been featured in Bustle, Pop Sugar. BuzzFeed, and Glamour. Let's get right to it. This is Dr. Nicole Sparks, Art of Being Well. Dr. Sparks, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. We're going to learn so much today. People are going to love this conversation. I know it already. We're talking about really important stuff. I want people to share this episode with friends and family. We're going to be talking about pregnancy. We're going to be talking about postpartum care. Anybody that's thinking of having a kid that's currently pregnant <laughs> any point, or you just want to learn more about female reproductive health, this is going to be hugely beneficial. So let's get right into it. I know that you got into this space in part, and the passion of yours is to decrease maternal mortality rates in the United States. And you mentioned through awareness and education, I think there's a disconnect, right? It's like, people don't even know that they should be even considering that, that we live in best country in the world, right? We're industrialized. Why, why is this even an issue? Can you shed light on this profoundly important topic? Yes, of course. So like you said, you know, we live in one of the best countries in the world, very industrialized. And so you don't think that we would have the maternal mortality rates that we do. And when you're talking about countries in the industrialized world, world, the United States actually fares worse than most of the others. So there's lots of reasons that they say that this is, you know, and this is actually more pronounced when you talk about Black women. So it's even worse 
And so, you know, that's very scary. And as an OBGYN, this kind of piques my interest because I don't want my patients to be afraid when they come into the office. I don't want them to be afraid when they're pregnant because pregnancy is supposed to be this happy time. But people come in and they've read this and they've read this and they're scared. And it's on different levels. So I tell people it's on an individual level, it's on the hospital level, it's on the systemic level. So, you know, the systemic level, you know, we of course need certain laws to change and things like that. But, you know, it could be from you having chronic health conditions to do you even have access to an OBGYN to do you have even the money and the resources? You know, sometimes depending on where you live, you may not even have the resources to get the kind of care that you need. And is your doctor even listening to you? So, you know, they've done studies that show that sometimes when women go to the office and they express concerns, they're not believed. So they may say that they have a headache and it's pushed to the side, but it's actually preeclampsia and it leads to a stroke, right? We recently had, not we, but, you know, in the news, there was a young lady who died of a stroke postpartum. She was home for, I think, almost two weeks and died of a stroke postpartum. And so I tell my patients that, you know, some of it is on us as physicians, but some of it is on you as the patient to actually advocate for yourself. So, you know, when I I just had my third baby, well, he's one now, but, you know, I took my blood pressure at home. I noticed my blood pressure was going up. Of course, I'm worried about preeclampsia. I called my doctor right away, got right in. Like, these are the things you have to do. You don't want to ignore your symptoms. You don't want to say, oh, it's nothing. Oh, it's fine. Because what you think is nothing could actually be very serious. And so I tell patients, be aware of your condition. So the first thing is education, right? You have to know what to expect. How much bleeding is too much bleeding? How much pain is too much pain? How much swelling is too much swelling? What should my blood pressures be? What is normal and what is not normal after delivery? You know, they they talk about a lot how we, during pregnancy, right, in the first trimester, I see patients every month. By the time you hit third trimester, we're seeing you every single week. But then when you have your baby, we might see you once. And that's when a lot of these dangers can happen. And so it's really up to you to be on top of your symptoms and be in communication with your healthcare providers so that if something is wrong, you don't ignore it. You actually take it seriously. Mm, thank you. I, I, I'm thinking of what you just said and something that we see a lot in functional medicine, integrative medicine, especially with the population that we see, people that have what the world would call quote unquote mystery illnesses, these sort of things like chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, different autoimmune problems. And there's so much medical gaslighting around this topic and hormone problems, which is kind of overlap with your space, This, it, whether it's reproductive health or it's just general women knowing their body and are told, you know, you're just depressed, you know, see you later, or you're just, you're just a new mom, see you later. I mean, many new moms are just, everything's chalked up to that, but they know their body. So do you feel like, and this is a big question, but do you feel like this I think historically, when you think of medicine and healthcare, there's so much gatekeeper and this sort of God complex to a patient or a consumer asking questions. It's almost threatening sometimes, especially within the system that we have, which it's tough for, from a time standpoint to spend time talking to everybody. But why do you think medical gaslighting happens? It's, it's, it's a complex question, but I'd love to get your perspective on what you're seeing. I think, like you said, it goes back in history and goes back to probably some of our training, you know? I do think that in the past that medicine was more patriarchal, like basically it, it's I said what I said and it is what I said and that's it. I think now we are really trying to change that. Like even when I take my board exams, they want to make sure that in your answers, you are basically saying that you were communicating with your patient. It's not I told my patient to do this. It's I presented these options and we mm. came up with a plan together. And so 
I think we're really trying to get away from that. And you're right. So, you know, in medicine, you know, we have 15 minutes with the patient and we're pressured to see more and more patients in less and less time. And because of that, sometimes we can't get to the bottom of things. And one thing I tell patients is that when you come in, have a list of your questions ready. Like, you know, especially if you, if, you, if it's like a follow-up, what are the things that you want to make sure that are answered in, in this time slot? Or really, if you have a doctor or a provider doesn't listen to you, I tell people you're not married to your doctor. Find a new one. Find one who will listen to you. And yeah. now there's almost more concierge medicine where doctors realize that they don't like the rat race of seeing patients every 15 minutes. They want to spend 30 minutes with the patient. They want to spend 45 minutes with the patient. And mm-hmm. so they've actually changed their models so that they can do that. And I, I really love some of the ways that medicine is changing because we know a lot, but no one knows your body like you, right? So yes, I've gone to school for 12 years. I've studied, I've done all of these things, but I am not you. And so if you come to me and you say, this is something that is wrong, and you're saying it's depression or it's anxiety, but I'm telling you it's something else. It is up to me to listen and to delve into that and see what is really going on. And so that's happened to me in medicine where I'm like, no, something's going on in there. It's fine. It's fine. It'll be fine. Again, you have to have a provider that's going to listen to you, that's going to take mm-hmm. your concerns seriously, because if they're dismissive and it turns into something serious, that's on them. So I really tell people, the way you choose your hotels and restaurants that you're going to eat at. Like that's the research that you do when you're finding someone who's going to be helping you take care of your body because Mm -hmm. you want someone who's going to listen and give you the time that you need to make sure that you're healthy. Yeah. Truth. I'm glad to hear you say that because that's what I see as well. Pockets of amazing change. And look, the vast majority of physicians out there, conventional physicians, they got into this because they wanted to help people. So I always tell patients, this is not a personal for the most part. I mean, there's exceptions to that. But what we're talking about here is not a personal indictment. This is like a systemic thing, which I'm glad to hear. Like their boards are changing. Education is changing. Even if you look mainstream institutions, like the Cleveland Clinic has a functional medicine center. I mean, people are wanting options and agency and choice in healthcare and there's room for everybody. I think there's different things for different people at different times. So it's it's good to be collaborative. And I'm, I, I have hope right? To these at least pockets of change and options for people. I think of even that term you mentioned, like it's just a migraine and it ends up being preeclampsia is that the, I've, the origin of the word hysteria and its connection to women mm-hmm. and hysterectomy. I, have you heard that? I mean, I didn't know that growing up, but we hear it like, oh, she's hysterical or they're hysterical. The history behind that word, pretty profound. Absolutely. And I've heard so many patients say that where they say they go into the ER and they're like, you're just depressed. You're, you're just anxious. You're just anxious. It's okay. You just need to, you know, calm down. And, you know, I feel like as a whole, and I love what I do. I love being in medicine, but I do feel as a whole, we really do need to listen to patients more. And I have learned that, like I have had instances where I was like, I am not listening. Cause I already think I know what the answer is. You know, you, you tell me a few things and I'm like, Oh, that's what it is. But you know, they've done studies where, they've waited to see like how long it takes for a provider to interrupt a patient, right? Because again, we have in this mindset, and again, it comes down to like the training that we got to go on, we got to move on, you know, we've only got 15 minutes. And so I think it's really up to us as a whole, as physicians, also individual to be like, I'm going to listen to your concerns because, you know, one of my attendings told me, he was like, the patient gives you the answer. If you listen to them long enough, they're giving you the answer. The thing is, yeah. we're not listening to them long enough, yes. you yeah. know? 
because we're in this rat race to kind of get out of the office. And I get it. Like I get it from the doctor side too, right? Because Mm -hmm. we've got the bean counters who are like, you've got to see this many patients. You're not pulling in enough RVUs. You're not doing Mm -hmm. this. But like you said, most of us got into this for the right reasons. That was truly to help people. And you're a good physician by simply listening to your patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and that's why we call the podcast, The Art of Being Well. Like, Like the science and the art, we have to hold both. And the art part is listening, holding space that, like you said, these clinical pearls that can be oftentimes missed when you are rushed, which I get it. It's like the system's not set up for optimal wellness, but we're making changes. The changes are happening, people. So I I don't know if you've seen the study. It's not a recent study. So I'd, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on if it's better, if things trending in the right direction. It was a JAMA report years ago, but rated all industrialized nations. The United States was either last or second to last when it came to these things, whether it's maternal mortality, infant mortality, shortened lifespan and health span. Do you feel like statistics like that are trending in the right direction over the past 10 years or are they stagnant or getting worse? They are not any better. I don't know in terms of the general things, but in terms of maternal mortality, we are still always ranked last or second to last. That is not any better. And so it's baffling. It's like, well, we're getting the latest and greatest. Why Why is it not getting any better? And like I said, they've tried to pinpoint it to, a, it's not just one thing, right? It's a mm-hmm. bunch of things on so many levels. It's going to take change on so many levels to change it. But until all of that changes, and there are lots of things in the work. There are so many groups. We've got groups right here in Georgia. So, you know, I'm in Georgia and we have one of the worst mortality rates. Usually we're like number 48, 47, 49. We're always at the bottom. And, you know, we have a lot of coalitions and collective groups that we have in this state that I think are doing a really great job. And we still have a lot of work to do. So while that work is being done, this is why I tell people, you advocate for yourself. A lot of this is happening behind the scenes and Mm -hmm. at the systemic level. While that's all happening, you need to be your biggest advocate. If you are worried about something, you know, sometimes patients will call, you know, I'm on call tomorrow. They'll call and be like, should I come in? I'm worried about this, this, this. I'm like, if you're worried enough, come in. I was like, I'd rather you come in and me send you home and it's nothing than you stay home and it's actually something. Mm-hmm. And so again, the biggest thing, advocate for yourself because the U.S., as great as we are, we are still at the bottom when it comes to maternal mortality. And yeah. so we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, we do. And and you think about it too, it's like, all right, we also know the statistics that we we spend more on healthcare than I think the next 10 top spending countries combined. So what's even crazier is that we're spending so much money, but it's obviously not effective. And I don't, I would be, I think most people would be, okay, if we have to spend the most to get the best results, let's do it. But we're spending so much, but yet we're not seeing the results. We're actually last or second to last. So there's something, like you said, it's so complex. It's not just one thing. It's a confluence of factors beyond the scope of this conversation. So it seems like the answer is we need to start from the ground up. Like you're saying, education, advocate for yourself, because that will create personal change, but also can create a cascade of societal change as well, right? Absolutely. Because if I have a patient that's advocating for myself, I feel like it's going to make me step up as a physician because, you know, it's the individual level, then it's us, then it's the hospitals, then it's the laws. Like we have to have change on every level. But, you know, as one person, we can only do so much when it comes to the systemic laws. So that's why I tell people, you know, you being educated and you knowing what you should and shouldn't expect is really some of the 
biggest things, you know, because if you don't know that it's not normal, you don't know to even call somebody to come in. Yes. But if you're like, nope, she told me this was normal. She told me if this happened to call her, then you're going to call because you're going to know exactly what happened. Like my sister, you know, as soon as her blood pressure, I was like, you need to go back in. She did. She had really bad preeclampsia. She had to stay an extra week, but she's alive and her baby's good because she knew, you know, exactly what to do because she's connected to me and could call me. But some people don't have those connections. And so you need to know for yourself, what do I need to look out for? And when is it serious? And if your doctor ignores you, you go talk to somebody else, but you make sure that someone listens to you. Because these statistics have got to change. It's, it's really sad because, you know, like you said, some of those statistics were from 10, 15, 20 years ago, and they are not any different. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm glad that we're shedding light on this topic of nothing else. People can start Me to too. advocate for themselves, ask questions in a kind way. That's why I always say, I say exactly what you say. It's okay. You're not married to them. Like, find a new doctor. Maybe they're not the right fit for you, but we always need to advocate. I always tell our telehealth patients, when you're working with the doctor, that's maybe not on the same page as you speak with respect, speak with kindness. We're not yeah. talking about us versus them. Like I'm no better than you and pull out your you know, Google. It's about being collaborative. And that's what we're trying to create is collaborative relationships. I love that. That's the key word, collaboration. Yeah, for yes. sure. All right. So let's talk about menstrual wellness. Okay. There's so much stigma people don't even know about their period. I, you know, I, I oftentimes will ask, how long is your cycle to a new patient? And they'll say three days, four days. They're thinking just the period, right? And the cycle is so much more complex than that. Can we do a little like maybe myths, but starting with a, like a 101, like what does a healthy menstrual cycle look like? What should, what's the goal? What's the optimal? So a healthy period is one that number one, occurs regularly. So regularly means around every month. It doesn't need to be the exact same day, although some people's is the exact same day, but just around every month within a few days. How long does it need to last? Everybody's different, but anywhere between three and seven days and whatever's normal for you. I think the biggest thing that I see with periods is that people complain about was, is the pain associated with them. So I think that we have been conditioned to believe that it's supposed to be so painful where you're missing work and you're missing school and all of these other things. And we just say, well, that's just your period. That's just how it is. But a lot, and some of my colleagues do a really great job educating about this on Instagram and on TikTok, that if your periods are keeping you out of school and out of work and you are just, you know, writhing in the bed all day, that's when you need to see is something going on. So you really need to look at everything as a whole, which is why I think your podcast is great. So like, what am I eating? Is there anything that's like triggering it? We know that exercise helps periods. Are you exercising while you're on your periods? Do you have fibroids? Like for me, I used to have really painful periods. I had really big fibroids. For those who don't know, fibroids are benign growths of the uterus. They're non-cancerous, but they can get to be very big. So for me personally, the biggest one I had was 16 centimeters. Okay. You have to be 10 centimeters dilated to have a baby. So I literally was walking around looking six months pregnant. This is when I was in med school. I just ignored it. Cause I was like, I don't have time to do this. Like I'm in medical school. And until it just became too much for me to handle, I finally went to go see a doctor. They did some images. They were like, you have these huge fibroids. We really need to take these out. And I had to talk to my Dean about missing some time off so I could get this surgery. But, you know, to me, it was just like, Oh, just heavy periods, just heavy. But no, I had huge growths in my uterus. And so you don't want to just ignore your period symptoms as if, oh, they're normal because there could be, you know, it could be endometriosis, it could be fibroids, you know, you could have really bad ovarian cysts, like whatever is going on, 
you need to, again, take your concern seriously and bring it up to your doctor and don't let, let them dismiss it as, oh, it's just my period. You, we may need to see if there's something more serious that's going on. Got it. So if somebody does have um, more painful period, obviously checking with your body, you shouldn't be having these higher end spectrum pain, like go advocate for yourself. But if you're just talking about the average person that's looking to decrease pain and discomfort, you mentioned exercise can be helpful. Are there any pro tips, any other hacks or science back tips that people can do to make the most of their menstrual cycle and optimize it? Yeah. So the, the only things that have been really, so exercise has been pretty well studied, you know, using heat, you know, alternating ibuprofen. I know some people, if you don't want to use like any medicine, just this is again, me listening to my patients. A lot of them say that they can tell if they eat a certain way that their periods are worse. They notice that if they change their diet in the previous month, their period is better this month. Not a lot of studies on that as much as exercise, but again, Mm -hmm. listening to see what people say, they notice that there's definitely a change in what they put into their body. So being mindful of what you are eating and, you know, mm -hmm. when you're on your period, you want to kind of just lay in the bed all day, but we know that exercise helps. It'll kind of give you that boost of energy that, you know, you feel like you're lacking, like trying to make sure you're still exercising during your periods. And of course, conservative measures too, you know, warm baths, heating pads, all of those things help. But again, what are you doing? What are you putting inside of your body to really make sure that your periods are better short of having something that's actually pathologic. Right. Right. Yeah. I think of so many people struggle every, every month. I mean, we deal a lot with hormonal problems clinically people it's painful periods or they're just laying down bedridden for days of the month. I mean, people settle for that because they think just because something's there every month, they equate that with normalcy. It's just because something's common doesn't necessarily make it normal. And I'm glad that we're shedding light on this. Yeah, me too. All right. So let's talk about postpartum care, like prenatal. If people know about prenatal, like let's nourish the baby. Let's, let's spend so much time and attention on that, which is good. It's important, obviously, but postpartum, it seems like culturally we shift so much to, okay, let's, it's all about the baby and mom's like left in the dust, which I know you want to change that for us. Like, why are we missing the mark here as a culture with postpartum care and what are some ways that new moms out there, what are things they can do? Yeah. And you're right. We are missing the mark. So like, you know, I stated earlier in the podcast is, you know, I see my patients 10 to 12 times over the course of their pregnancy. But then when you have your baby, it's like, bye, see ya, you know, and ACOG, which is our, you know, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has recognized that and tried to change that and made recommendations that we are seeing patients sooner and more frequently. We're not waiting six to eight weeks to see patients because it's not just about physically healing, but there is a huge, we're talking about hormones. Those are a huge shift in hormones that happens after you deliver. You know, postpartum depression, postpartum blues, very rampant. And if we're not seeing patients and getting them in, they're not having anyone to talk to and it could be very detrimental for our patients. So we focus a lot on the baby we have to focus on the mom too. So a lot, one thing I tell my patients is to make sure that you have things in place even before you deliver. So if you know you have a history of postpartum depression, you are telling your physician this so that they can be on top of it so that you guys are seeing each other within that first week to discuss anything that's going on. Your spouse, your family, your friends, you know, whoever your village is, and your village does not have to be family. I tell people that your village can be hired. It's whoever is going to be there to help you. So we all have this superwoman complex. I do. I can do it all. 
I, you know, I have three kids. I'm a doctor. I'm a wife, a mother. I, I can, no, I can't do it all. And I don't want to do it all. So you just need to get out of that mindset. Who is going to be helping me? Who is going to help me this day? Who is cooking? Who, like literally set these things in place before you have that. Once you have the baby, it's already too late. You got so much going on. So in that third trimester, you were literally lining things up so that you are not going to be as stressed. You are not putting all the stress on your body. Whether you have a vaginal delivery or a C, I've had three C-sections. It is so much on the body. The last thing I want to do is come home and be worrying about all of this. It is, mm-hmm. and I think it's important also to let some things go. It's okay if the laundry piles up. It's okay if the dishes pile up. You need to focus on you. And the biggest thing I tell people is don't be afraid to ask for help. Like we see help as a sign of weakness. I see it as a sign of strength. I, it's recognizing that I cannot do all And I am enlisting the help of my village so that I can be better for myself and for my baby. And so, you know, those are my biggest tip. I think of everything else is ask for help, ask for help, because that's going to help you do everything else. It's going to help you focus more on yourself. It's going to help you get enough sleep, make sure that you're eating the right way so that you can then nourish your baby. You just, you don't have to do it all. You do not have to do it all at all. I love we're giving people permission right now. I mean, it's whether you're, whether you're (laughs) postpartum or not, like so many people, they do feel like they have, especially women, have to have it, do it, do it all. And it's, for lack of a better word, it's really killing a lot of people, literally and figuratively. I mean, burnout is a real issue. I mean, it's stress and its implication on human health is huge. All right, some natural things. What are some natural things from a self-care standpoint, postpartum, that you love to recommend to your patients? Absolutely. So one thing I love to recommend to my patients, because again, you're having a lot of healing, no matter how you deliver your baby, there's a lot of healing that is going on, especially if you have perineal tearing or soreness or hemorrhoids. I love recommending T and Dickinson's, which hazel products, they have some with and without alcohol. The one without alcohol has aloe vera, which is again, helpful for healing, which hazel itself is an astringent has great hemostatic properties, is great for inflammation, soothing and healing those areas. So I tell people to make these patsicles, which uh, I do. They sell them, but you can actually just make them yourself by simply just taking a pad. You can pour some diluted witch hazel. You can either add some aloe vera. Like I said, some of the witch hazel products actually have aloe vera in them and you stick it in the freezer. So not only is it actually soothing for you, but it actually has healing properties as again, your body is taking time to heal. So that's one of the main things I love for my patients. In addition, you know, when we're not talking about products, just make sure that you are, you know, I know we're going to get into some self-care, but I tell people that self-care doesn't have to mean like I'm getting a manicure and I'm getting a pedicure. Self-care for me postpartum was me getting 20 minutes of uninterrupted shower time because I just know that my baby just knew that when I got in the shower, he was going to start crying. So making sure that you're putting things in place so that you know, things that seem like normal everyday routine actually can turn into self-care for you. So a shower is just normal, right? But I can turn it to is this is my 20 minutes of peace. This is my 20 minutes of space. You know, I've got my diffuser on and this is me kind of decompressing so that I can go and then be better for myself and for my baby. So just finding those little pockets because otherwise you will get overwhelmed. I was there. I had postpartum depression after all three of my babies, even this third one, I was like, I know what to expect. I'm an OBGYN. It's not going to happen. It did happen again. And so, you know, you just, again, expect these things, enlist help, and just make sure that you're putting the things in place so that you can be good to yourself. I think that's the biggest thing. Just be good to yourself. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. So I want to get the name right. You call it a pad sickle? (laughs) Is that what you said? Like a pad, but icicle? I love it. 
<laughs> I love it. You'll hear patients say it. They call it patsicles. So yeah, I love it. But man, that's, why, and that's one of the main things they they love because you just need some soothing. And again, you can buy them, but I tell people just make them. Just make yeah. them. Get you some diluted rich hazel. Put some aloe vera on there. Stick it in the freezer, and you are good to go. I love it. I mean, look, I have two kids. They're old. I'm older now, teenagers. But I remember. I mean, Tian Dickinson's witch hazel was like a game changer, even game for changer. me. All these, years. and I talked to my team in preparation for today's conversation. Everyone that had a baby said Tian Dickinson's witch hazel was a game changer for them. So you mentioned some of the benefits of it. Why is it so good? And we wanted to get the alcohol-free version for this purpose, correct? Yes, I mean, and you can use the regular version. I tell people if they have sensitive skin or if they're just allergic to a lot of things, T.N. Dickinson's also has an alcohol-free version that has hyaluronic acid, aloe vera. That's what I use. So I just think that's really great. And it's not just for postpartum uses. Like my husband uses witch hazel for his skincare. I use it for my kids if they have sunburns, if they have bug bites. T.N. Dickinson's also has cleansing cloths. And so, you know, I carry it around in my car and I use it for my kids. And then Going back to pregnancy for hemorrhoids, hemorrhoids are a big thing. They have their hemorrhoid pads. And so that's also very helpful because there is a lot of pressure that comes from the uterus and from the belly. So hemorrhoids are really prominent during pregnancy and postpartum. And so there are just so many uses, everyday mm-hmm. uses. But of course, because I'm an OBGYN, I love all of the postpartum uses. of mm-hmm. which I didn't think of the bug bites. That's a, a great tip. My daughter is so prone to bug bites, you know, different blood types. I think this increased likelihood of being attracting these things somehow. She swells up. I want to try witch hazel now. It's a great idea. Try it. Yep. It has really great hemostatic and vasoconstrictive properties, which are great when it comes to bug bites as far as like killing them faster. And then just to soothe it because, you know, my daughter, she'll just complain and complain. It itches, it itches, you know, she's four. And so even just the soothing property alone is going to be helpful. And then you add in the healing properties and that's great too. Mm-hmm. And you said for sunburns as well. That's another Absolutely. application for it. Great. Any other self-care tips? Any other thing that you've seen clinically like be a game changer for people? Like you said, it could just be this like sacred shower, like elevating these mundane things to this is my time of some stillness and some me time. Any other ideas? Yeah, I, th- I, I think the only thing that I want to add is not to feel guilty when you take this time to yourself because I tend to do that. Like if not, if I'm not actively doing something with my kids or or my husband or for work, you know, you almost feel like you're not doing enough. And I, you know, you said on this podcast, we're giving people permission. We want to give you permission to rest, to know that you are doing enough, to know that you are enough. You don't have to do every single thing. You just don't. You just don't. You do what you can. And sometimes I feel like I'm not doing enough. And my children, they think I am the best thing since sliced bread. Even on days where I feel like I have missed the mark, they just think I am wonderful. And so stop being so hard on yourself. Like to me, that's also part of self-care. We beat ourselves up. I can tell you that I do that all the time. I did it in med school. I did it in residency. I do it now, even that I'm out of training. I beat myself up for things that don't go right, you know, rehash things that don't go right. And I I feel like we really just need to be kinder to ourselves. Well, that's deep wisdom. I, I think sometimes when we think of self-care, it's the chocolate, it's the bubble baths, it's the whatever. Sometimes it's doing nothing. Sometimes it's like not one more thing, even if it's quote unquote self-care thing. It's like just some grace and some lightness, which is oftentimes kind of the hardest thing because it's, you mentioned that superwoman complex is sort of cultural 
even, you know, not just for women, but in general, this hustle culture, more is better. Yeah. More yep. isn't always better. I and mean, you meant specifically with kids, they want your presence. They want your presence more right. than the doing, right? Right. That's exactly right. Something exactly. You, you mentioned earlier is all of those statistics we talked about are even worse for black women, even worse for people of color. Something we talk a lot about in the podcast is representation within wellness. And I think giving people a voice where they think, well, that's not for me, right? Wellness isn't for me because I don't see someone like myself up there. And it's just, it, there's been this weird separation that has to change because these are things that are plaguing everybody, no matter who you are. And even worse in these marginalized cultures that didn't know wellness was for them. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like what you see as a black woman and do you think that that's moving in the positive direction or not? That is a great question. So it's funny when they started to do this research in terms of maternal mortality and seeing that, you know, black women were two to three times more likely than white women to die either during pregnancy and their year following pregnancy. They actually coined this term called weathering. And they said basically that black women over their course of their lives, like little triggers and traumas and microaggressions that they have to deal with actually contributes over time to these higher maternal mortality rates. It's really interesting if you read about it. And in addition to that, patients as a whole sometimes say they don't feel heard. I feel like I hear that even more with my Black patients where they're like, they didn't believe me, anything like that. And, you know, we don't even have time to go into all that today. But if you read some of our medical history books and even like how some Black women used to have surgeries on them without anesthesia because it was believed that they didn't feel as much pain and things like that. AMC even did a survey with medical students and the bias with medical students was crazy. Like the, the medical students literally thought they, like Black people shouldn't get as much pain medication because they could tolerate pain better. So they were noticing that they were literally offering them pain medication less than they would offer white patients. So they've done so many studies on this and it really, I mean, you would have to go back and read like medical apartheid. I mean, there's so many great books on this, but it's the history. And then another thing is that a lot of black people don't trust the medical system. If you think about the Tuskegee and the syphilis experiment and just all these other things that have been done when it comes to medical experimentation, there's like a lack of trust. And so we have to build that trust within the healthcare system again, because sometimes people are not coming because they simply don't trust us. They don't trust us as their physicians. And so that's why I said we have to do our part too. Patients have to do their part, but we also have to do our part because how am I going to make you trust me? You actually come to me so I can help you. So Mm It's a loaded question that we could actually talk about for hours and hours, but a lot of studies have been done. And like I said, it just goes way back. And a lot of that history, I feel like is kind of infused because it was surprised me that even medical students now even thought that like you, mm-hmm. you really did think that. And they've done studies that show that black people are offered pain medication less than their white counterparts. And so, like I said before, we've got a lot of work to do when, yeah. even when it comes to that. Right. And it's like you talk about these systemic issues beyond the representation component of it. Then you get into the history of, you mentioned the Tuskegee experimentation, which I don't think even most Americans even know what happened. It's a big topic. We don't think it's super deep into it, but I'd love for you to shed light on what happened and why we need to repair these relationships and be collaborative with people. So if we're talking about, you know, specifically in my field as an, as an OBGYN, You're talking about the father of medicine that came up with the speculum and everything else. 
when they wanted to do experiments, they would use slaves. And because, again, there was this mindset that, oh, they don't feel pain, you know, a whole bunch of experiments without anesthesia. And that literally just kind of trickles down to the point where a lot of us are trying to see if we can get some of this taught in medical school, because I feel like people simply don't know. And I do think that if we were to even incorporate this into the medical curriculum, I truly do think that we would create better physicians because they would be more aware of their biases. And so when you talk about biases, you know, they talk about explicit, implicit bias. So some people are just biased just simply because of how you look. But what they were also noticing is that people were not realizing that they were actually treating people differently. Mm -hmm. So they have done so many studies where they didn't even realize, like, you dismissed her concern, but you didn't dismiss hers. You offered her this, but you offered this patient this. Mm -hmm. And so this implicit bias where people are not even realizing what's happening is actually what's killing our patients because you don't even realize that you have this. And so to me, it's one of these things where if we created more awareness in medical school, in residency, where it was literally part of our curriculum, I can then be more aware when I'm seeing this patient, okay, let me truly listen and get rid of my own bias and see what this patient is actually saying to me. Thanks for going there for me. I know it's a big topic, heavy topic, but I think it's important. It's something that we've not talked about in the podcast, and I'm glad that we went there. As you know, the podcast is called The Art of Being Well. Yeah. Uh, at the end, we have your art of being well. This is Dr. Nikki Sparks' Art of Being Well. I'm going to pick your brain. This is you personally, just okay. your hot takes on different things. First question is, what's the worst tasting healthy food? You still have it <laughs> because it has some health science behind it, some health benefits but it tastes disgusting. Do you have any foods that fit that criteria? I would say for me, I know some people like kale. I think kale is absolutely disgusting. I just, <laughs> I feel like it has a bitter taste. I hate it so much. I will still get like kale smoothies just because I'm trying to be healthy because I recognize the benefits. I will just force it down and mix it with some other things. Yeah. And if you kind of, you know, dedicate a kale salad really really right. I might eat it, but honestly, kale's disgusting. I don't care. My sauce is disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. There are better greens out there anyways. Lower oxalate. Yeah. You just op open up your world. I think kale's maybe overrated a little bit, but yeah. So we're, we'll give people permission even there to <laughs> find some other greens if they want to, if they want to. You mentioned essential oils earlier. What's your favorite essential oils to diffuse? So my favorite, I think we use lavender and peppermint a whole lot. And I just feel like I'm in a spot. Like anytime anybody comes into my bathroom, they just say, it just feels like a spa. And I've kind of created that so that I have that space. But I would say at night, we usually use lavender. And during the day, we run peppermint. I love it. If you had to pick coffee or tea, what would you pick? So I do not drink coffee. So it's going to be tea for me. I don't know how I have made it through medical school and residency and these 24 to 48 hour shifts without coffee, but I am actually not a coffee drinker. I don't even like the smell. So it is going to be a mint. I'm a mint tea girl. <laughs> wow. Even caffeine free with the tea. Yes. So you're, you're, you're a purist. You're a purist. Yeah. No caffeine. I don't know. I don't, I, I probably could do better in other areas, but I don't, <laughs> I just never got into, even when, I mean, residency was probably the closest to it, you know, and I get like a pumpkin spice latte in the fall. But yeah. as far as just like being a regular coffee drinker, no, never. I love it. So that's funny because so you have some people that love the smell of it, but don't want to have it. But you don't even like the smell of coffee. No. Yeah. And I get it. The pumpkin spice latte, like those things, it's like a 
using coffee as a vehicle for sugar. And of course, most people like that. It's right. right. It's just sugar. Like I told you, I was like, this is just, just sugar is all it is. <laughs> <laughs> sugar and milk. Okay. Next question. What's your dream vacation? Anything in the world? What's the dream holiday for you? Dream vacation. We travel a lot. So we've actually been quite a few places, but I would say dream vacation for me would probably be Bora Bora or the Maldives. Like we haven't wow. made it there yet. We did, we did a summer vacation with my children. We went away for a month to Europe. We did France. We did Italy. We did Switzerland, which is my favorite. It's just beautiful. And we did Spain with a seven, a four and a one-year-old. And it wow. was, a, it was, it was intense, but it was also a lot of fun. And we're, we're going to do it again this upcoming summer. But as far as like a dream, like with just me and my husband, I think Bora Bora or Maldives would be that would, that would just be absolutely amazing. I love it. So, okay. Seven-year-old, four-year-old, one-year-old, one month backpacking around Europe. Well, I mean, that is, a, I mean, talk about memories that you know, it's just so priceless. So, so priceless and such a privilege and blessing, but like what, any pro tips there? I mean, traveling with little ones for that long, any takeaways? So pro tips, I think the biggest pro tip is to bring some help. We were supposed to bring my mother and then my dad got sick right before so she had to stay so we said if we but when we go back we just need to be able to bring some help so we actually found childcare over there so i know how people feel about that but we hired childcare here but even one of our hotels they offer babysitting services and so they would have somebody come to the hotel for three or four hours every night and me and my husband would go and we would go eat and we would do these experiments. and it was really great and she was wonderful and while we were we stayed in Lake Como for five days and she came for four of those five days and my kids loved her we ordered food to the room and she kept them right there in the hotel room and it was just so convenient so I think thinking of ways outside of the box where you can still get help if you don't have someone you know you don't have a nanny or somebody who can travel with you again our plans fell through last minute just find some help over there but I mean, the memories are amazing and people say, oh, they won't remember it or things like that. We went to Destin a couple of weeks ago and my daughter named all, she's four, she named all 10 cities we went to. She's like, we Aww. went to Barcelona, we went to Malaga. And the the people she, were talk, she was talking to, were like, they were so impressed. And so I know we think they're not going to remember it. They also, we also made a, a scrapbook with pictures so that they can look back on it. And yeah. so they can just constantly... Yeah you know, remember this experience that we had. It, it was always my dream to do that. And I asked some of my colleagues to take some of my call shifts and they did, and we made it happen. And honestly, that that was really my dream trip that I've already done, but it was it was amazing. And now that I'm like, we've done it once, we can do it again. So we're doing I it, love next, it. Time, next time. Too. That's fun. <laughs> so out of all the places you went to last summer, Switzerland was your favorite? It is. I just tell people the views to me are just unreal. You know, it just like, I just, the views are just crazy. The water, we just drink it right out of the fountain. Like I, we kept asking them for bottled water to make my baby some milk. And they were like, you know, the tap water is coming straight from the Alps. They were like, that's like the best. They're like, you don't need to keep asking us to get water. The water is just fine. And so I just think just the, the air just felt fresher. It just was, it just was so beautiful to be. And my husband plays golf. And so I got a hotel and a golf course so that, and he's like playing with the Alps in the background. He, he was like, that was, he was like, thank you for that. That was so, you know, we chose in the hotel while he got his golf days. And so it was just amazing. Switzerland, oh, the views are just to die for. That's amazing. So next summer, are you going to go to the same places or are you going somewhere different? We're going to try some different places. The kids want to go back to Italy. They said they love Lake Como. So and, and my, my son, he's seven. 
he he must be learning about Rome somewhere because he is just like, I have to go to Rome. I don't know why. I don't know. <laughs> so we're kind of listening to them. We're adding in Croatia. We're thinking about adding in Greece, but not the usual Santorini because it's very, we've been to Santorini. It's very hilly. You can't do strollers. So we're probably going to do like Crete. We were going to add Egypt, but we're deciding, you know, depending on how it is to go next year. It's like a two and a half, three hour plane ride from Greece. So we're kind of, you know, nitpicking the details right now, but probably two countries the same and probably two new countries. I love it. I, hey, I could ask you about your travel all day long. It's traveling with kids. We did the same thing. My kids, 17 and 14 now, we took them everywhere. It's like, to me, it's like, if you have the ability to do that, don't wait. Like, don't wait till your kids are older. Make these memories now. Like, people just wait to live. Like, you're saying, like, no, like, we're not promised tomorrow. Like, if you're going to plan something and you can do it, do it now. <laughs> That's my I advice. love it. You are my kindred spirit. Everything you've said. And people are like, why are you taking them? Why, why am I not taking them? You yeah. know? I don't want to do <laughs> my life. Exactly. There's a time and place for you and your husband to go. But I mean, to be honest with you, I like vacationing with my family. That's where memories I do. Made, you know? yeah. I do. Because when, we're, when the two of us are gone, we're like, oh, we miss them. And we do lots with just ourselves, which is great. But honestly, it was such, it was just so great having them there. And I'm so excited to do it again. And I love that you did it too. I love yeah, it. They're older now. But even last summer, we did the UK and Ireland and, you know, England, Ireland and Scotland. It was so much fun. Even, I mean, it gets... It's just a different kind of fun. When they're older, you're just like traveling with your friends. It's, it's, it's cool. Yes. Yes. I like that. I like that a lot. This is probably going to be a difficult question for you, but what's your favorite restaurant in the world? And when you're there, what do you order? <laughs> I, oh my gosh, I don't even know if I could, I don't know if I have a favorite restaurant in the world. But you're based in Atlanta. So you have like a favorite Atlanta spot. That's amazing. We do have, and now I'm blanking on the name. I'm going to say it's my favorite. We have an Italian <laughs> restaurant here that we actually love. Their gelato is so good. Their seafood is delicious. And I feel bad because I can't remember that. I'm like, I could be giving you free, but I can't even remember the name. We go to like once every other month. I would say for right now, I'm sure Atlanta has, I mean, Atlanta has so many restaurants. I cook a lot. And so even if you ask my daughter, like I asked her what her favorite restaurant was, she was like, oh my, it's your cooking. Like this is what she says, because I, I cook a lot. So yeah, we're yeah. usually just eating here. But when we do decide to go out, we do love going to, and I feel it starts with an end. I, I can't even believe I can't remember the name. Yeah. But I'm the same but way. It's really good. And it, it, it just feels like authentic Italian food. Like I said, we love Italy. And so I feel like I'm getting a little taste of Italy every time we go. I love it. Well, I put you in the spot. I didn't give you these questions beforehand. So no, no problem. <laughs> and if you want, just message me afterwards. I'll put it in the show notes for people that are in okay. Atlanta or traveling to Atlanta and want to know. <laughs> okay. Last question. What's a book that you've read in the past year? It could be fiction or nonfiction that was like a game changer, got you thinking in a, in a new way. So I like Atomic Habits. I've read that this year. I've actually reread that this year because I read it last year. And the reason why I like it is because Again, it's like it basically shows you that little changes make a big difference. Right. So mm -hmm. if I go to the gym one day for 30 minutes, it seems like that's nothing. But if I do that over the course of time, I'm going to see my body begin to change. If I'm studying just this one day, that doesn't make a big difference. But if I'm doing these pockets of study over the course of time, I'm going to do well on this test. And so I really like that. And another book that I love, Essentialism, which I think is wonderful. Everybody should read it, which basically tells you, you know, what is and what isn't important in life. Like, I feel like we sometimes we're busy, but we're not doing a whole lot. So it's basically showing you how to focus on the things that are going to actually help you get to the next level. And if it's not essential, you're not doing it. And so I think those are two great books that you could read every single year 
and it would still apply to whatever stage of life that you are in. I love it. Great tips. Thanks so much. Honestly, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go? Where can people go to learn more about your work? Let's start there. And then I want them to go to tndickinsons.com to check out The Witch Hazel. But where do they go for your work first? Yes, definitely check out The Witch Hazel. And for me, you can find me on all platforms at Nicole Alicia MD. That's Instagram, TikTok, uh, my website at www.nicolealishamd.com. I blog a lot about just family, about my travels, about advocacy. Peer, everything we've talked about today are things that I talk about on my platform. So I think we had a good breadth and depth of everything. We talked about menstrual wellness, talked about pregnancy, talked about postpartum. I think this was a really great conversation. So thank you so much for having me on. You didn't know you'd be talking about travel on a health podcast. I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) It's part of wellness for me. We're giving you permission to travel with your children. That's right. Amen. Don't let people tell you, oh, you wait till they're older. I can tell you, even with, again, our kids are pretty young. We we still had an amazing time. So you don't need to wait. Do it now. (laughs) We shift this culture for this. I love it. Thanks, friends. (laughs) Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back again next Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon. note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.